0: Welcome to IndieCider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits.
1: This is your host, Ken Gagne. This week on IndieCider...
0: It's kind of like when actors start writing roles for themselves, you know? If it's so hard to get a job making what you love, then just why not try and do it yourself?
1: That's Ethan Benenov of Molten Tomato, developers of Super Happy Fun Block, a 2D puzzle platformer for iOS. Ethan pitched his game to me through the contact form on IndieCider.net. A lot of indie developers reach out to me that way, but more often than not, it's the same press release they send to every outlet. Ethan took the time to specifically recommend his game for IndieCider, and you know what? He was right. It's a fun game. Super Happy Fun Block is a 2D puzzle platformer, as I said, where it's almost entirely a monochromatic world in which you play as a round, small character named Ball. Much like the movie Pleasantville, black and white is the way of the world, or so it was until blocks started falling from the sky, and these blocks are different colors, red and blue primarily. But Ball has a special ability. Much like the Xbox 360 game Outland, he can make one color of block appear and the other disappear, or he can make them both appear at the same time. So, for example, if the red wall is in your way, You just swipe to the color of red, and all the reds on the screen disappear, but yellow is still there. So then when you need yellow to disappear, you swipe left to yellow, and the yellow disappears, and the red reappears. You can use this to hop from one set of platforms to the other, timing it just right so that the platform you need to land on appears just as you are about to land. It's not just platforming, though. There's also a variety of puzzles, such as moving blocks, moving them onto pistons, dropping them into pits, and etc. to make the path clear. The Level Select menu indicates how many stars are hidden in each level, and you want to try to find them all before you make it to the exit. Sometimes you'll need to play through the level multiple times to find them all. It's a charming game that works well on my iPad mini, where I found myself surprisingly not frustrated by the controls. A lot of iOS games, when the controls are the kind that you could use a joystick for, like up, down, left, and right, and they map those onto the screen, I get frustrated because it's just not as responsive as I need it to be. And of course, the act of view interfacing via touch obstructs some of the screen, but Super Happy Fun Block has a really good layout, and the controls work just fine, so I have no issues with that. I'll be interviewing Mr. Benanov not so much about the gameplay, but more about the development process, which of course is a large part of what IndieCider is about. In fact, I'm going to have a bonus audio episode of IndieCider coming out soon, but if you want to find it, it's available now on my YouTube channel under the name Five Lessons in Indie Game Development. In the meantime, thank you for listening to IndieCider. I truly appreciate your support. If you want to follow me on Twitter, the handle is GameBits. On Facebook or Google+, it's GameBits TV. And if you want to leave a review in iTunes for the IndieCider podcast, that would help Apple rank us higher so that more people can find us. Gotta game those algorithms. In the meantime, here's this week's interview with Mr. Beninov. Today I'm honored to be speaking with Ethan Beninov of Molten Tomato, developer of Super Happy Fun Block for iOS. Hi, Ethan.
0: Hey, you uh, totally pronounced my name right, so that's really cool. I Trust me, I've been practicing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so welcome to the show. Thanks.
0: Uh, glad to be here.
1: Yeah, glad to have you. So Super Happy Fun Block just came out on September 12th, was it? Yes, exactly. And how's the reception been?
0: Really positive. People love it. I've been, like, you know, doggedly watching the Touch Arcade forums and refreshing the reviews on iTunes, and so far it's all been just super positive, which is really, really awesome. You know, the scariest thing is always, like, someone's gonna not like your game, which you know will happen, no matter how good your game is. But, yeah, so far it's all been good, so.
1: Excellent, I'm glad to hear that. I'm not entirely surprised, either. It's a fun game, but I'm... Surprise in the sense that there's not a lot of lineage behind Molten Tomato. You go to the website and it says this is Molten Tomato's first game, but it's not necessarily your first game. So before we talk about the game, tell me a bit about your own story. Before there was Molten Tomato, there was Zynga.
0: Yeah. So uh, straight out of college, I got a job at Zynga as a programmer. I'd actually wanted to go directly into indie games, but I figured I'd apply to a couple companies that I thought, you know, would be like, really good jobs to have and if I got into any of them maybe I'd take them and work for a few years and save money so that you know I wouldn't be starving to death while trying to make my game Uh, and I got hired by Zynga so I moved ahead with that plan basically I worked there until I no longer enjoyed working on those sorts of games the social game and then I quit to make my own thing
1: so what kind of games were you working on at zynga if i may ask farmville presumably or texas hold'em poker chefville
0: i worked specifically on petville mafia wars 2 which was zynga's quickest failure at the time that was pretty cool (laughs) and um castleville
1: so you stuck when you left zynga with mobile games but you transitioned away from the social games why was that
0: yeah well i'm not a big fan of social games. It was actually really cool working at Zynga and kind of coming to understand how much certain people loved those games. Uh, I'd always sort of thought these are the kind of games no one actually loves. It's just most people sort of like them. But that turns out not to be the case. So even though I was there as a programmer, it was very interesting as an internal designer to come to understand what people really liked about them. Uh, But even when you know that, if you just don't like the games you're making, it's not really satisfying after a while. Uh, So I decided to leave and make the kind of game that I love to play. And I really like having games anywhere. So it was really exciting when I got an iPhone and all of a sudden it was like this really compact and kind of powerful mobile device because it's really annoying to bring around a DS if you don't have like a a messenger bag or a purse to bring it in. But everything on mobile was like these really arcadey games, which are fun, or these social games. And I thought, you know, why not make a platformer? Why not make like a really deep story-driven game that can just be done in these bite-sized chunks when you're on the bus or a train on the way to work. So I decided, well, if no one else seems to really be doing it, uh, I'll just do it.
1: That's really interesting what you talked about, about wanting to work on games that you're passionate about, because in my own history, I, earlier this year, interviewed with a game developer who shall remain nameless, who makes mobile and social games. And I thought, if I get this job on their communications team as marketing, I'm going to be marketing a, a genre that I may not necessarily be passionate about because social games are not my forte. And to be honest, neither is mobile. I'm first and foremost a console gamer and secondly a computer gamer. And there's not as much development in those areas in Boston. You know, Especially for indies, you're making uh, mobile games or Steam games. And So to work in this industry, you I was advised I need to be flexible, especially with mobile, which is where so much of the industry is moving. Just look at the changes Konami is making. And sometimes you need to make games that you may not personally be passionate about just because it's such a competitive industry, you can't afford to be selective.
0: Yeah, and I think the best way to to avoid that issue altogether, it's kind of like when actors start writing roles for themselves, you know? If it's so hard to get a job making what you love, then just... Why not try and do it yourself?
1: That is fantastic advice, and that's what you did with Molten Tomato. Now you have Super Happy Fun Block to show for it.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you were working on this game for about three years? Yes, though in a sense, eight years would be more accurate. How do you figure? It's actually, I don't know if remake is the right word. It's more of a second try at making this game with this mechanic. I actually made it originally with a with a group of friends as part of a class in college uh, when we only had six months to throw together this game, you know, and we were all still pretty new to programming. And this is the first game any of us has made. And uh, the game was like a, a complete mess. But the mechanic and some of the puzzles that we made were really solid and so we always said you know one day like one of us should go back and and make this game work and that was just always for eight years in the back of my head and every time i was playing a game i was thinking like oh like what can i learn from this to fix that the the original game was called gamut to fix gamut when i remake it you know so like when i played fez and it had this kind of connected world that you warped around in. I thought, oh, like that's so great. That's so much better than these kind of disjointed levels that I, I felt Braid had and a lot of, and Gamut had. Like, why not try and kind of build a world you're walking around? And maybe at first the world doesn't seem to have much, but you kind of discover, like in, in Fez, you know, you find kind of archaic like, almost hieroglyphics that sort of almost tell a story, but I wanted to really have you find a story and, like, have you realize, oh, this isn't just this happy game. Like, this is the ruins of a world that's already been destroyed. And now I'm trying to save it. Yeah, for a long time, I was sort of always working on it in my head. And, like, I've always drawn comics just since I was a kid, so I do little doodles for it. And then finally, the time came where I felt like I need to just start working on this before it's too late and somebody else stumbles upon this mechanic and like makes my game before I do. Now, you said
1: you had classmates working on this project with you. Does that mean that you owe them royalties or at least an honorary mention?
0: Uh, they are in the credits. I, I believe we we made the game under the name Prism Games. Uh and so I, I named, you know, Special Thanks to Prism Games, and I listed all of their names, and uh I've also updated them about the game constantly. But as far as I know, none of them want royalties or have asked for it. If they did, uh I don't know, it, it wound up being a very different game, but... Yeah, I, f- I figure if they felt they were entitled to it, then I'd feel they probably were.
1: I think if they were that demanding, then they might go from being friends to being former friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. So I noticed, uh, didn't work with them. You, This was mostly a one-person show, but you did mention on the site's credits that you worked with Chase Bethia on the music. Who else did you reach out to to collaborate with this project? What sort of What were your weaknesses that you felt that bring in an outsider could help you buff up the game.
0: So, yeah, as you said, music, I have no ear for and no brain for. So that was like the first and foremost. I really need someone to do this and I was very lucky. I actually bumped into Chase at uh Indiecade last year and he showed him my game uh and he he loved it and he's like, "Oh, I'm a musician. Like here's my contact and we traded it. He said he'd contact me. And uh, I met a few other musicians around the same time who the same thing happened with. But Chase was the only one, and this is advice for other composers who are trying to get onto game projects. Chase was the only one who, when he did his follow-up email, instead of sending me a sample of like general work he's done, he sent me a track and said, when I played your game, this is like the music that it inspired me to make for it. And I loved it. It was, it was excellent. It's a, uh, so yeah, I, I hired him right off of that. The other spot I was really weak in is actually writing. I had an idea for the story that was pretty developed. Uh, and I think I'm a pretty funny person. I can make like decent jokes, but I couldn't really make a cohesive story that could be understood And even when I knew what I wanted said generally in a scene, I just could not craft dialogue at all. And luckily for me, my girlfriend is actually a narrative designer. She used to work at Zynga doing that, and now she's doing contract work for other companies doing that. And so she's been a huge help. Uh, Almost every word in the game was actually written by her or collaboratively by us, but if it, if it's good, it was probably written by her.
1: Wow, that is quite the team you assembled. The anecdote about Chase sending you a sample, not, not necessarily a sample, but a track that he composed for the game, that is a good way to get to get somebody's attention and to stand out, but on the other hand, it also sounds a little bit like working on spec, where you're doing some work for free, and if it doesn't work out, then you have this track you created for a game that doesn't want it, and you don't have anything to do with it. So I'm not sure how I feel about that, actually.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think he could have always uh, still posted it to his website as a sample of music he would made. But, yeah, you might be right. It could be a big risk and a waste of time.
1: True, but I think what would be a bigger issue was if you put out a call for musicians to create free tracks and you would choose the one you like. This was something Chase took the initiative on. It was his idea.
0: Oh, yeah. You should never ask anyone to work for free. Uh, i think that's a weird thing a lot of people do because they don't have the money to pay people and so they they think like oh like we'll work on this project together but then they don't cede creative control to the other person really right so you're just asking someone to to do essentially slave labor for you that you might not even use so yeah i i would say never ask someone to work for free <laughs> um but if someone wants to send you a sample to get contract that's a really good idea but i would never ask someone to do that i've never told anyone who contacted me oh send me like make a song for me and i'll decide
1: no of course not i certainly didn't mean to suggest that's what happened i i get that chase did this but i i don't think chase's approach would scale per se
0: <laughs> That's also true, yeah. if you're like applying to 20 different games.
1: So you needed some help with the narrative and with the music, but the design and the development were all your own, and I noticed that some of the tools you used are called Cocos 2D and Box 2D. I'm not familiar with these.
0: Are these uh, la- programming languages, game engines? Uh, Cocos 2D is a game engine that was made specifically for the iPhone and uh, has been around for many years. If you've heard of SpriteKit, that's like Apple's own version of Cocos 2D that's pretty clearly inspired directly, or ripped off. Yeah, inspired by Cocos 2D. Like, the API is pretty similar. Um, and Cocos 2D actually is now basically dead. Uh, they, they won't be updating it for very long. They're moving to an object, uh, uh, sorry, to a C++ version of the engine so that it can be cross-compiled. Actually, they have the C++ version already, but they're exclusively pursuing that one in the future, I believe. And Box2D has been around a really long time, and that's a physics engine that was written in C++. It was actually, I believe it was pretty popular with X&A games because it was a free and very efficient physics engine. And it was also very popular on Flash games. I'm not 100% sure, but I also believe that Angry Birds was made using Box 2D.
1: You mentioned that the newer version of Cocos 2D allows for cross-platform development, or will. Does that mean that the version of Super Happy Fun Block that you released for iOS is going to be difficult to port? Because I know you have PC, Android, and console versions envisioned.
0: Yeah, it's going to be... A little harder than I thought it would be to port. It was actually briefly owned by another company called App Portable, and they had created software to compile Objective C into packages for Android and other things. So I was kind of banking on that for a little while and thought I'd be able to launch it, at least on Android and iOS at the same time. But App Portable, I guess, went bankrupt or something. <laughs> so Yeah, I've been looking into uh, Cocos 2DX and just porting my game to that, which, you know, it's going to be a lot of grunt work. Like, I do have to rewrite almost every line of code. But on the other hand, Cocos 2DX is structured the same or almost the same as Objective-C. So it should hopefully actually be pretty easy. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of like tiny bugs everywhere, and it'll take longer than I want it to take, but I think it'll be doable.
1: You mentioned rewriting all your code. Can you tell me a little bit about your development process, how you maintain your code and update it?
0: You know, when you're when you're working alone sometimes you take advantage of that and you might write a little bit less organized than you do for example when working at Zingo with, you know, 20 other devs on something. I definitely have one file that is several thousand lines of code on its own. <laughs>
1: I'm sure that Zynga has a lot more processes in place, especially when you're
0: collaborating amongst a team.
1: Yeah. You know, a lot more checking out code revisions and the like.
0: Uh, yeah, it has a lot of that. I actually, and my friends and father, who's a programmer, always yell at me about this, but I did not use any source control for this game other than backing up on Google Drive. Why would you do that? So I originally was using github uh which is free for if you have a public thing and my thought was oh like no one knows who i am no one will ever find this and fork my project so no worries and at the same time i was doing art for a a friend's game who was also using github and somebody randomly forked their project which caused me to freak out and just pull my stuff from github and rather than smartly be, you know, calm down and think like, okay, what's, what's my options here? What else can I use? Like Bitbucket. I was just like, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not touching that again. So bad decisions made out of fear. And did that come back to bite you in any way? It hasn't for very long. Every once in a while, an update happens to Xcode that will break my game without me doing anything. And I spend, you know, an hour freaking out and thinking, oh why, oh, why didn't I back this up so I could just re-download it how it was, but then I always figure out what's wrong pretty quickly and continue on my memory way.
1: I as a non developer, the closest I have is something like Time Machine on my Mac, and I just assume that that's sort of keeping versions for me. And I think even the latest versions of Mac OS X may have its own inbuilt versioning system, which I either don't use or don't know how to use, but I've never really needed to keep a source control repository myself, so this has not affected me too badly.
0: Often it's used in professional settings, obviously in case something weird happens and someone breaks everything in a very complicated way. But mainly it's a way so that you can work uh in parallel with other people and then carefully combine the code once it's all done or so that you can work on a feature for a little while and if you decide you don't like it it's very easy to rip the feature back out simply by uh going back to a, a previous version but I don't know I wrote all my code very modularly so it was very easy for the most part if I was like oh this feature is not so great to just delete the files and remove one line of code somewhere else.
1: So speaking of features and ports, will the game be at all different when it releases on other platforms
0: other than obviously the control scheme? Probably, yes. I take a lot of pride in the fact that the game is pretty polished. People seem to, to agree that it's that way. But when I play the game, all I see are the things I wanted to put in and ran out of time for. So it would be really nice to at least throw a few of those things in when it comes out on Android and certainly on PC.
1: I'm the same way with print publications. I try not to read anything I've published because once it's in print, I can't change it and all I see are the mistakes. (laughs) Yeah. So at least with a game, you have the opportunity to update it and revise it and maybe even release a new version, which you will be, which is great. Yeah two more quick questions one is about the game itself which is that obviously it's very color dependent that's the mechanic with the red and the blue primarily and then some other colors now i have some i have at least one friend that i know of who has some degree of color blindness and a game like Puzzle Drome, for example has shapes that can be substituted for the colors is there anything like that in super happy fun block to make it as accessible as possible
0: Unfortunately, there isn't. I did have something in there briefly that I hoped would work, but it didn't. And that might actually be one of the things that I revisit during the port. So for a little while, every block in the game shined. Like there would be this moving shine across it in one direction. Uh, And that direction matched up to the color to the direction you have to swipe with your right hand to phase that thing out. And so my thought was, one, it would help people just remember which way to swipe when they're looking at an object. They see the red object, and it's sliding to the left, so they think, oh, slide my thumb to the left. And two, for people who are colorblind, they could just use those shines. But it turns out that it was just too subtle an effect, and nobody noticed it. Um, interesting yeah i'm i'm actually personally slightly red green colorblind and i do have friends who are more red green colorblind than me which is part of the reason that i made the game uh red blue yellow instead of red blue green but i know that there are other forms of colorblindness or people who completely can't see color so hopefully i'll i'll find a better solution while porting
1: Yeah, that might be worth investigating. The other question is Boston Festival of Indie Games. Boston Fig was just held earlier this month. In fact, it was held the very same day that Super Happy Fun Block came out, if I understand correctly, September 12th. And I was there, but I didn't stop by your booth. Were you there? Because you're not from Boston. You're on the West Coast. That's,
0: yes, correct. (laughs) I am very far away from Boston, but I did go and show my game there. So it's a shame you did not see it.
1: Yeah, I think I did walk by your table, but I don't think I realized that the game had just come out because you had provided me with an advanced review copy for iOS, and at the time, I didn't know you were going to be on the podcast, so it didn't occur to me to stop by and say, hey, you want to come on the show? So I'm sorry I missed that opportunity, but was that your first time, since the game had just come out, was that your first time showing the game at a, a conference or a convention, demoing it to the public?
0: Um, Sort of. It was my first time having the game playable to the public at large. Yeah. I had showed the game to other developers at IndieCade's Indie Exchange. And I gave a talk for Sprite Builder, which was owned by App Portable, about puzzle designs using examples from my game at GDC. So those were semi public showings of it. But Boston Fig was the first reel. I have a table. My game can be played. Come play it. Tell me what you think. You know, have a pin. And what was the reception? It was really positive, which was also really cool. It's always fun to see people pick up the game. And I'm always nervous because it's a it's a very different way of controlling games. There might be a few things out there, actually, that are a little bit similar. I discovered Leo's Fortune at some point and that has kind of similar controls to Super Happy, so I'm always nervous that I'll see like, oh, I was wrong, and people don't understand these controls. But most people do. Every once in a while, there was someone. It was interesting. Like I saw, I, d- I did a lot of testing of my game over the last three years, so I thought I knew every way that people can misunderstand it, and I did discover one new way. Which is people uh, when they change the color of the world the first time to red to walk through those blocks, for some reason one maybe two people instead just kept swiping left and right, so that was like heartbreaking because I saw someone just not understand the basic mechanic of the game, that filled me with fear. But for the most part, everyone loved it. Uh, I think my favorite was when people were surprised that they liked it. Like, um, I had these foam core cutouts, like these 3D, not exactly 3D, because they were flat, but they were little stands for the game and like a little almost diorama or two that I'd made. So people would spot that and come over and be like, oh, that looks really interesting. And then they'd realize, oh, this is an iPhone game. And you could see them be like, I guess I'll look at it. But then they'd start playing, and a lot of them literally said, oh, I like this. That's really surprising. So that was all exciting and very cool. Some kids even took the iPads and iPhones and just sat on the floor and played it for a really long time.
1: That's really cute. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations on defying their expectations about not liking your game just because it's on a mobile device. Thanks. Yeah.
0: Sort of the goal.
1: Yeah, I would certainly say so. So like I said, it, it's a fun game. I like the the mechanics, and I haven't gotten too far into it to figure out exactly what the narrative is that's going on, but I'm looking forward to exploring more of the game. Remind our listeners
0: where we can find it and you online. So the game is on the iTunes app store. It's Super Happy Fun Block, and you can also find it online. Uh, you can check out the website, superhappyfunblock.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Glazed Koala, which is totally unrelated to any of those things. So might be hard to remember that one, but don't worry about it. And where does that name come from, if I may ask? Uh, in high school, when I was making AOL screen names for AIM, or not high school, middle school, I would just combine random adjectives with animals, and every week or so I'd make a new one to message my friends with and i guess glazed koala was the last one i made when i got bored of doing that and it just stuck as my handle for things ever since you should
1: keep an eye out for another game that was at boston fig emily is away oh yeah did you see that one
0: i did not i did not have time to actually leave my booth and look around that's
1: one of the challenges of being indie you can't man the booth and do anything else uh, but Emily is Away is sort of an interactive fiction game, but it's framed as an IM conversation with your friend Emily. You're both in high school, and she's texting you, I guess, or IMing you, and you choose which response you want. And then you sort of just mash the keyboard as the player, but all the right words pop up on the screen. Huh. So you actually start having a conversation. So, sort of choose your own adventure. You're not free form responding to her but it gives the illusion that you are it's kind of neat
0: that sounds amazing i think i actually saw their setup because i remember seeing like a someone hung up a curtain and had the aol instant messenger guy on it and i i was wondering what that could possibly be about that's so very cool.
1: And just like AOL did, they're give, they were giving out their game on CD, which I pointed out to them was a bold move because not everybody even has a CD-ROM drive anymore. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I don't have one, actually.
1: Right, but they do have a, a download link. The game comes out next month, October 2015, and you can log online, and there's a gameplay trailer. I think the disc they were handing out came with a download code for the first level or so, which was probably a Boston Fig uh, timed exclusive. I'll have links to that and to your games in the show notes for this episode, which is a very useful thing, not only if you don't know how to spell Glazed Koala, but also if you made the mistake I did and go to Supper Happy Fun Block. <laughs> Which does not work, by the way. Maybe I'll buy that domain too. <laughs> Just buy all the misspellings. You know, yeah. So out of business. So, uh, Ethan, thank you again so much for it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks. It was fun for me
0: as well. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net.